This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Welcome to Property Patter. My name is Emma Humphreys, and today we're looking at the Section 20 consultation process required before residential landlords start major works projects or enter into certain long-term agreements. This consultation process was put into place to try to protect residential leaseholders. It provides them with an opportunity to be consulted on appointments and on how their service charge money is spent. Unfortunately, the process is complex, time-consuming and increasingly subject to disputes and litigation. To explain some of the practical issues involved, I'm joined today by Georgina Redsell and Lauren Fraser of our Real Estate Disputes team. Lauren, In 2016, the Upper Tribunal confirmed that the obligation to consult with tenants included subtenants. Can you tell our listeners about the practical steps suggested by the Tribunal in light of that obligation? So um, this was a case of leaseholders of Foundling Court and O'Donnell Court and the Mayor and Burgesses of the London Borough of Camden. So whilst consulting, whilst arguably consulting with subtenants causes an additional administrative burden for landlords, the purpose of the Act is that those who are ultimately responsible for paying for works or services should be consulted. But as there's no direct relationship between the landlord and the subtenants, this can cause a few sort of practical issues for landlords seeking to comply with their consultation obligations. So to deal with this, the tribunal put forward some practical suggestions. Um, The first one was that they felt it was sufficient to deliver a consultation notice delivered to the leaseholder for each flat in the building. Now, whilst there's no guarantee that this will reach all of the tenants who are required to be consulted, the tribunal didn't consider this to be fatal, given that there are no service provisions in the Landlord and Tenant Act 1985. There is a risk that some residents who are not entitled to be consulted might submit some observations in response, um, but this can be avoided by including some appropriate wording in the notice so it's clear what its purpose is. Another option is for the superior landlord to request the relevant information about um, tenants' identities from the intermediate landlord. The intermediate landlord is likely to be motivated to cooperate with such a request because the failure to carry out the consultation exercise properly means that it would be it would be restricted itself in terms of the costs it could recover from tenants. And then a final option is for the landlord to apply for dispensation from the tribunal. This might be an appropriate option where the landlord doesn't know the identity of all of the subtenants or can't find that information out even by seeking the cooperation of other landlords. Um, and in these sorts of situations where they where they've sort of tried to find out the information but need been unable to, um, the landlord's likely to have a good case for less stringent requirements to be imposed on the consultation process. Thanks, Lauren. That's very helpful. And moving on to the details of the regulations, they say that a notice of intention has to describe in general terms the works proposed or the relevant matters in respect of a qualifying long-term agreement. How much detail should a landlord go into when preparing the notice of intention? Perhaps, George, would you take that one? Yeah, sure. So in terms of how much detail, you know, a landlord needs to go into in the notice of intention, it's obviously important to bear in mind the purpose of the the notice and the legislation. So you need to give enough detail so that tenants can make informed observations and potentially nominate 
um, you know, contractor. So for a qualifying long-term agreement for a QLTA, um, it's important that you obviously provide a summary of the works or services that are going to be provided under the agreement in enough detail so that tenants can make observations. And in terms of if you're preparing a notice of intention in respect of qualifying works, then the description of works is usually based on the full and final specification that the landlord will have marked up, will have worked up, sorry, <clears throat> and that they're going to go out to tender on, and that's the specification that they'll get the estimates on. Um, so it's just about being very sort of transparent and giving enough detail so that the tenants, you know, know what's about to be entered into or what works are about to be done. Thanks. And another practical issue we often see where a statutory consultation needs to take place uh, is where a landlord wants to preserve its right to forfeit in respect of certain tenants. So I think our listeners would like to know whether serving consultation notices waives the right to forfeit. Yeah, so that's a really good question. It's something that comes up quite a lot and there's no kind of straightforward yes or no answer. It's arguable that because the landlord has to serve this notice pursuant to um, you know, statute and regulations, they're not actually serving it under the lease. Um, that it doesn't waive the right to forfeit. And that's certainly the view that was taken by the upper tribunal in um, a case from 2018 called Stemp and Six Labbrook Gardens Management Limited. And in that case, um, it was held that the tenant was trying to argue that various things that the landlord did waived the right to forfeit, including the fact that they had served statutory consultation notices. And the tribunal said, no, that didn't waive the right to forfeit because you can't expect a landlord to basically delay major works, you know, whilst forfeiture proceedings are ongoing. But that part of the decision was obiter, meaning that it's not binding on other courts. So it's still not entirely clear. The position isn't clear cut. Um, and if as a landlord, you're ever in a position where you're looking to preserve the right to forfeit and you need to carry out a statutory consultation, you should seek legal advice because depending on the circumstances, there is still a risk of waiver. Yeah, it's always a tricky one, isn't it? Waiver, I agree with you. It's, it's definitely one worth checking on a case-by-case -case basis, I think. Hard to have a general rule there. And thinking about, so once the notices, the initial notices served, Lauren, we know that a landlord is obliged to have regard to, is the wording used, uh, any observations made in response to the consultation notices. So what does this concept of have regard to actually mean in practice? Well, helpfully, there is no case law on this. So we really just have to take a common sense approach. I, generally speaking, um, it means that a landlord should give some thought um, as to whether a court or tribunal would consider the final decision of the landlord to be reasonable. So this means that a landlord needs to consider not only what is relevant and reasonable from a commercial perspective, from its own commercial perspective, um, but also consider the impact of the observations from the tenant's point of view, um, so that you know it can, it's, it's giving a balanced um, approach to the people who are ultimately going to be paying for these costs. Um, it's what's really important is that the landlord's able to evidence that it's considered the observations. So in some cases, these this evidence might have to be produced in front of a court or a tribunal if a leaseholder challenges the final decision. 
Now, relevant evidence could include um, board minutes or minutes from other meetings, um, which show that the observation have be, observations have been discussed and given due regard. Okay, and again, keeping focus on the practicalities, I understand from various clients that there has been some delay in instructing major works due to the pandemic with issues in sourcing labour and materials, of course. Is there a time limit between serving the notice of intention and the second set of notices or indeed service of the notices and then commencing the works? Well, there's no strict timeline as such. So I'm going to come back to my point about common sense approach again. Um, there is one case that gives us some general guidance, which is Jarzemski and Westminster City Council from 2013, where the tribunal said that the period of time should have been a matter of months, not years. And so in that case, there are two years had passed between the service of the first and second notices. Also, those two years were 2007 to 2009, which was obviously a case of quite a bit of um, economic turmoil from up and down. Um, more specifically, on, on, the, on those particular notices during that time, um, the scope of works had checked, scope of works had changed. So the first set of notices weren't valid um, for the purposes of work carried out some two years later. So really, the practical point is that if there is any delay between the service of the notices, it's really important just to check whether the specification which was originally provided by the contractors um, is up to date and whether they're willing to stick to their prices until the end of the consultation period and the start of the works, really just sort of gauging what impact the delay might actually have um, and whether the, 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 the two notices are a fair reflection of each other. Thanks, that's really helpful. Um... And another practical question, a final practical question, when it comes to undertaking the works, obviously a landlord will consult on the basis of a specification, which it uses as the basis of a tendering exercise, but what happens if the contractors go on site, start work, and then of course, perhaps the scope of works changes at that point? Um, Georgina, what, what goes on then? <laughs> So, again, it's all about bearing in mind the, the purpose of the legislation. So the question you, you need to ask is, in all of the circumstances, um, have the tenants been given sufficient information by the first set of estimates that a fresh set of estimates wouldn't have made any difference or afforded the tenants any further protection? So the leading case in this area is Reed Base and Fatal, which is a court of appeal decision. And in that case, works were carried out to the roof terrace of a penthouse flat overlooking Regent's Park. And in the course of the works, the landlord changed the tiling on the roof from a tiles bonded onto asphalt to tiles resting on pedestals um, above a waterproof membrane. And the uh, obviously the notice of intention and the estimates that the landlord had obtained and on which the tenants were consulted didn't refer to this pedestal method. That was something that had obviously come up during the course of the works. And so the tenant alleged that the consultation process basically was invalidated by that fact. And so the landlord couldn't recover uh, all of the costs that had been spent on those works. And it was held by the Court of Appeal that a fresh set of estimates wouldn't have made any difference on the facts of that case because the landlord had informed the tenants of the change in the works. And in fact, the tenants had actually approved it 
the changing cost was relatively small in proportion to the cost of the full set of the works. Court of Appeal also took into account quite a practical consideration, which was the fact that it was unrealistic to think that contractors who hadn't been awarded this major works contract would come back to tender for um, you know, the small cost of these additional works that were required. And so that there would have been some sort of cost saving if they would have gone with another contractor for that element of the works. Obviously, these were works of the roof, so any delay that there would have been in having to re-tender would have probably prejudiced the tenants uh, more. And also the Court of Appeal noted that the tenants have got this additional protection of uh, Section 19 of the Landlord and Tenant Act 1985, which is this protection that says that under residential leases, costs that are service charge costs have got to be reasonable in amount and they've got to be reasonably incurred. So those are the factors that were taken into account by the Court of Appeal in that case. But obviously, again, you know, standard lawyer answer, every case is going to depend on its own facts. I think probably the key takeaway from that case is that obviously you want to be keeping tenants up to date and keep consulting them, even if it's outside of the, uh, you know, formal consultation process. And then, you know, obviously get legal advice and you're going to have to, it's going to come down to a balancing exercise, I suppose, as to whether or not it's going to be necessary to seek dispensation if when the contractors get on site, the, you know, the works change to such an extent that really you should have, you know, you should re- redo the consultation, but you can't practically because contractors are on site um, and they need to get the job done. Thank you, Georgie that's, um, and Lauren. That's um, been been very interesting uh, and a great practical overview of the Section 20 consultation process and the issues that arise quite frequently. Um, I know there is more on our website about these issues, so please do take a look, listeners. Um, I would also remind our listeners about our essential residential area of the website, which is excellent for keeping you up to date on the changes in the law relating to residential property. Until next time, thank you for joining us and stay safe. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. <laughs>